Hello, dear friends. Crystal Cheatham here. I hope you enjoyed your holiday season because we are bringing you one last gift as we start this new year. My friend Sterling Freeman, who was a fellow panelist on the pre-work, launched a new podcast this time last year. Yes, the date today is January 6th. Three years ago today, we watched our nation's capital being torn apart. After years of the stoking of race politics, things finally boiled over. But that is not the United States Sterling Freeman sees. And that's one of the reasons why, on the anniversary of this date, he has chosen to bring you The Wisdom and the Work, a limited podcast series that shows us a different racial journey, one that celebrates the roads we make together as Black, White, Brown, and Indigenous people. So if you enjoyed the pre-work, and I know you did, we are bringing you the first episode of The Wisdom and the Work as a gift. And moving forward, find and subscribe The Wisdom and the Work for next Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Please enjoy. The Capitol Riots. Who among us didn't sit gap-faced watching our nation's capital being swarmed by insurrectionists on January 6, 2021? Our host, Sterling Freeman, was one of millions unable to reconcile what he hoped for America with what he saw televised that day. Two years later, little has changed in Washington to reflect our disappointment. But in the grassroots of our nation's resistors, much more has been going on than meets the eye. Join Sterling Freeman as he brings our attention to movers and shakers, activists, scholars, and scholactivists who have dedicated themselves to racial justice work and feeding that dream of race equity that we so hope for that day. We bring you the wisdom and the work. Mama used to ask me, did you hear me? And I would respond, yes, mom, I hear you. Then she would volley back, but are you listening? Beloved, I am not sure what your formative experience was like, but the folks who raised me taught me early in my journey that there is a difference between hearing and listening. In essence, psychologists differentiate hearing and listening as involuntary and voluntary acts, respectively. Hearing is passive while listening is active. That is to say, it takes no effort to hear stuff. All of us hear things. We hear sounds, laughter of children playing, voices from a community of conversations, the hum of machinery, click-clack of gadgets, the revving of engines and honking of horns, televisions, and radios. We hear stuff every day, all day, without paying attention. It's all background noise. Whether we want to or not, we just hear things. But listening is a different matter. It takes effort and focus and energy to listen. Listening requires, however long or short, a commitment. Hearing may allow us to remain stolid and unfazed, having had it go in one ear and out the other. But listening opens way for us to be moved, inspired, challenged, edified. Listening, whatever our response, is a gateway to at least being conscious about it. 
whether one resigns to just hearing or makes the commitment to listen, the simple and profound truth is that it is a choice. As my colleagues and I contend, race is always operating in our culture. Even who is considered worthy of being listened to is racialized. It is a choice. The record of the racial history in our country is chock full of testimony of especially black people not being listened to, despite centuries of full-throated cry declaring their humanity. A cry involuntarily heard and relegated to background noise in the drama of white supremacy culture. For this episode of The Wisdom in the Work, we are pleased to have with us Sabrina Slade and Kellen Moore. Sabrina is Director of Racial Equity and Advocacy for the John Rex Endowment in Raleigh, North Carolina. She leads the endowment in creating equitable frameworks for capacity building and advocacy. Kellen is the president and CEO of that same organization, the John Rex Endowment, and she is responsible for the overall management and strategic direction of the endowment. And her efforts are central to the endowment's commitment to centering racial equity in all it does. Sabrina and Kellen have both served in the philanthropic sector for many years. That they have found each other is a boon to the sector in that Sabrina and Kellen are not interested in simply financially resourcing projects, but making space to unleash the power of communities. They are motivated by the proposition of turning traditional philanthropy on its head. In their partnership, Kellen understands that listening is done on purpose. And Sabrina finds confidence in Kellen's commitment. This grounds their relationship in uninhibited truth-telling that in many ways sets both of them free. Imagine that, beloved. Enjoy the show. Hello, Sabrina. Hello, Sterling. Nice having you here. Thank you. Hello, Kellen. Hello, Sterling. Great to be here today. Thank you for being here, Kellen. I am pleased and I am honored and I am happy to have Sabrina and Kellen. Uh, we are we go way back. And so it's a pleasure uh, to have them on the wisdom and the work. And I know that our listeners are going to be in for a treat. So let's uh, get right to it. Uh, the first thing I'd like to ask, and Sabrina, I'd like for you to share with us first, is just to give us a sense of, of, of your work and kind of what you do in the world. Give us a sense of that. Yeah. So um, I always like to introduce myself as a Black Southern female grant maker. It is a big part of my identity. It is a big part of why I do the work I do and how I do the work that I do in philanthropy. Um, and as you stated in my intro, um, we are a capacity building funder, so we're not necessarily funding programs and services, but we're asking those tough questions about the why, the why behind the inequities and what is that rooted in and what does it look like to dismantle that? And what does it look like to call other people, other funders into this work with us? Thank you so much for that, Sabrina. There's something I want to come back to in that, and I will. 
Uh, but let me turn to you, Kellen. Tell us a little bit just about what your work is. So my work as a white, privileged, middle-class woman in the South <laughs> has been 35 years in the nonprofit sector, you know, raising funds as well as funding, as Sabrina and I have done or are doing now together. Um, and I chose the work, or the work chose me, I'm not sure, because it really wasn't a career path back in the day. But this whole idea of philanthropy, you know, the, the whole what it means is the love of humankind. And that aligns with my values and that aligns very much with my faith. And so getting to go to work every day where there has been that alignment has brought so much joy. And yet I've also seen all the inequities. Um, and so it just felt very important um, in my role at the John Rex Endowment the past five years is, you know, to address those as best as we could in philanthropy. Um, recognizing where the money comes from. And we all know that. We'll talk about that later. Um, and so, yes, I'm grateful to be in the world as a philanthropist um, and most importantly, as an advocate and an ally for racial justice. Thank you so much for that, Kellen. So I want to ask you, Sabrina, as you understand this concept, and we've talked about it, in the past of the wisdom in the work that is amplifying the wisdom, you know, of black and brown mm -hmm. folks uh, who are impacted by structural racism and certainly challenging white folks to step up and do their work. How does that resonate with you uh, as a black person in the world? And why should that be part of the conversation around racial justice, this this wisdom and work kind of framework? Why, why should it be part of the conversation? Mm -hmm. So when I think about the wisdom and the work, what comes to me first is the prioritization of those with wisdom, those most proximate to the issues and listening and learning from them first. Um, there are lots of books out there for black folk, for white folk, uh, for academia, for those who just wanna understand more about racial equity. But there is something to be said about the actual wisdom and where it comes from and whose wisdom should be prioritized. And I believe mm. strongly in the work that we do at the endowment is that not only are we doing it with our grantees, we are doing that as a staff. Um, part of the reason why I feel like the work is functioning the way that it's working at the endowment is we have an environment where I do feel like people are listening to Black and brown people there, board members and staff. And so that is what's resonating is that lived experience piece that I have. Not that I have it right, because I don't, but I can share a lot about my own lived experience as a black woman in the South and my blackness as a funder in the South. Um, and that is what's resonating for me. Yeah, I appreciate that, Sabrina. Let me ask you, because you you did in your intro talk about being a black woman in the South. And then I want to attach that to this whole business of uh, tapping the wisdom of those who are most proximate um, to the harm of structural racism. Can you just say more about sort of your black woman identity and things you know mm. in terms of wisdom that you bring to this work? 
Yeah. So, um, and I'm going to talk about this in context of, of just professionally doing philanthropy in the South is we have the opportunity, a lot of us to be able to be in networks and conversation with other parts of people in the United States and the world for that matter, doing some phenomenal work. But it is never lost on me that these systemic issues that have been rooted into, gosh, the birthing of our nation have started in the South. When I think of Jim Crow laws, when I think of all the civil rights activists and issues around um, poll taxes, I mean, any inequitable law that was created was created by a Southern grant maker. And that still holds true, even though we don't see it on a day-to-day basis, I feel it as a Southern Black grant maker. I feel it in looking at some of the things that are happening in other parts of the country where these programs or initiatives are just thriving. But I know that a lot of that won't fly here in the South. And so my goal and my mission in this work is to try to figure out what does it look like for the South to be able to do this work and who needs to be called into the work in a way that they understand that we can make this happen, but it can't rest on the shoulders of just Black people. <clears throat> Thank you, Sabrina. Kellen, let me turn to you with the same question. This, this idea of the wisdom in the work, first, how does that resonate with you? And, and why do you think this should be part of the conversation around racial justice? Well, Sterling, um, one of the things you've shared with me about how January 6th was the catalyst for wisdom in the work and moving this forward, and that you were not surprised by what happened on January 6th. And I'm not proud to say this, but I was, because as a white person who, you know, uh, has grown up in white supremacy culture and benefited from it, you know, I just thought, oh, our country's so much further along. We're so much better than this. Um, This can't be happening. And yet when I talked to all my black and brown friends and colleagues, they're like, no, we weren't surprised. This is the world I live in every single day. And so it has to be part of the conversation for people like me, even though I'm intentionally waking up every day. We talk about race in the office every day and how it's showing up. And even with the benefit of these relationships I have with you and Sabrina and other leaders of color, I still didn't get it. That was last year. So (laughs) what I would say is, you know, there's a lot of learning and unlearning and awareness and listening that white folks, including myself, have to do. Um, And it's a journey. And so I'm hoping people will join me and Sabrina and you and all of us on that journey, because now I won't be surprised when it happens again, because I've grown. Mm -hmm. Kellen, I I, I really I like what you're saying there. And and one of the things is that as I was thinking about this and talking about sort of like as people who are closest to the harm as black and brown folks, one thing I know for sure is that day to day I'm vulnerable and not safe, <laughs> right? And that's something that I know that my white siblings have to get their their heads around a lot of times, right? Their arms around. So, Kellen, I, I wanna I wanna go back to you and and just kind of talk a little bit about 
what sort of what sort of what sort of brought you in specific? What 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 brings you to kind of that understanding and that that knowledge that like, hey, you know, my experience, you know, as a white woman is definitely not the same as my black colleagues. And and talk about kind of coming into that realization and what you've learned about that. I I think it started um, when I came to this work. It was really about power and how power was showing up. Um, in philanthropy, power between white men and white women in the boardroom. Um, and so I, I have to be honest, that's what brought me to this, this equity and justice work was because I'm a fierce advocate for women. Yeah. yeah, the um, yeah. That's right. And yeah. so that was, re- and so, and so in the naivete, so I went to this session about two years ago where it was eight hours of learning how I contributed as a white woman, to what happened on January 6th, how we, what was my role in that, <laughs> and still is today, to perpetuate that type of white supremacy culture. Um, and so you just can't unsee it once you see it. You have to start getting involved, learning, growing. And that is really, I think, what has brought me to this work. That's how I got there. But then as we, as we say at work, race is always operating. So, let, so let's talk about how that's showing up in any decision we make. And there's a lot of isms that are showing up too, um, but we can't, it needs to be race and. And I think Sterling, you actually taught me that, that it's always going to be race and. Thank you, Kellen. You know, as I hear you, Kellen, something comes up, Sabrina, that I want you to address um, and that's talking about, and you, you you pointed to it a little bit in your last answer when you began to talk about kind of, you know, the, the laws that are in our land and that are deeply, you know, kind of rooted in our land and, and how that impacts uh, everything. And that, Kellen, your point about race, you know, kind of always being present. Sabrina, can you talk just a little bit more about what it means to bring your wisdom to to the to the to the work of getting down into those roots, right, and and kind of kind of telling the truth mm. about about why we are where we are. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So um, first, I want to say that um, you know we all grow up, and as little kids, people ask, well, "What do you want to do when you grow up?" I never ever said I wanted to work in philanthropy. I mean, it was the furthest from my mind when I thought of thought about or think about philanthropy, I think about like the Rockefellers and you have to have a whole lot of money. And and the people I saw at the time doing quote unquote philanthropy, they didn't look like me. So um, my um, relationship with philanthropy is very complicated to begin with. So I want to lay that foundation first. Mm -hmm. Um, As a black woman doing this type of work in philanthropy, um, Kellen alluded to it. We know exactly where our money came from. When I was hired at John Rex Endowment, I remember I wasn't even hired yet. It was my first introduction to Kellen. She said, I want you to know that John Rex enslaved people. Um, And I thought, wow, this white woman didn't have to tell me that. It wasn't really relevant um, necessarily to the interview, but I appreciated her being authentic in that way because I knew she was on a journey and it very much mirrored what I hoped to see with John Rex Endowment and the board at the time. The board was already talking about advocacy, which was really important to me. Um, And so 
this journey of being on this side of philanthropy, being in a capacity building role has given me the opportunity and us the opportunity to really examine what everything is rooted in. So when I talk about the unjust laws of Southern philanthropy and Southern lawmakers, these laws were and are on the books by design to keep philanthropy doing what it does, funding out, and to keep people who are most proximate to issues in these issues. Um, in my role in advocacy, which is another reason why I really appreciate the work that we're doing at John Rex Endowment, is we're able to ask the questions and to agitate in ways that maybe some other people in philanthropy cannot agitate. We're able to um, name some things that are happening that we see that we know are inequitable. And we also have the opportunity to call people into the work. Again, I'm going to go back to philanthropy is just, um, it's a, an older, antiquated type of way of thinking, I believe. And in order for us to flip philanthropy on its head, we're going to have to name, and we are, we're naming things that people necessarily don't like to hear. It's not sexy. We're not invited to a whole lot of coffee and conversation parties or but it's part of the work that we're doing, and that's so important to racial equity and racial justice. Thank you, Sabrina. And just one um, follow-up with you, Kellen. As, as I was hearing uh, Sabrina talk about, what struck me was the interview. In the interview that Kellen shared with you, you know, John Ricks, you know, enslaved people, right? And your appreciation for for uh, Kellen saying that, Kellen just. Talk about what kind of got you to say that out loud, right? I mean, because <laughs> I imagine that that you know we have, of course, white leadership all over philanthropy, and my sense is not all of them are leading with that, right? <laughs> right? And so, <laughs> Kelly, just talk about what what got you there and why it was important. Uh, yeah, it was very intentional um, because. I was trying to create a very inclusive, diverse, racially diverse organization. And I was interviewing and hiring um, people of color in a, I mean, the interview pool, um, LGBTQ, sorry, LGBTQ folks. Um, we really were intentional about not wanting the organization to look like me. Okay. So I don't want to tokenize. It was also not tokenism. It was, I wanted to be authentic with Sabrina about where we were, why her, where we came from. Um, and I didn't want it to be in this. So I, cause I was really probably at that time leading from a position of fear a little bit uh, Sterling. Cause I didn't really know how to go about creating this and transforming the John Rex endowment into the organization that it is today. That's taken five years. But, but Sabrina was the first hire, and I was hiring somebody who had racial equity and gender equity experience um, to fill gaps that we did not have in the endowment, and certainly I did not have. So it felt important to be honest with Sabrina about where we were, where how far we had to go, and still do. Um, and so it felt important for her not to know that I was not tokenizing. I was not, you know, I, we, we were serious about bringing her genius, you know, to, to the office. And she was, she was my first one on paper. 
but she was my first interview. And I'm, I mean, I knew as soon as I read about her experience, as soon as she walked into the room, I said, this is the woman. There's something in her soul. I want to do this really hard work with Sabrina. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, here we yeah. are. Yeah. 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 I really appreciate that's inspiring. I appreciate that. And, and, you know, the point that you made, Kellen, about being intentional about, you know, hiring folks uh, who are people of color, who are LGBTQ folks, uh, et cetera. I really like that intentionality. And I like to often put that in conversation with these kind of um, the kind of pushback that says, well, you know, what does that mean, particularly as, a, as me as a white person in this organization? What does that mean for me? Or what about white people who don't get in? And I'm flipping that and saying, well, what about all of the black and brown folks and other folks who have been kept out? Right. So it's a it's a it's a conversation. And that gets us to that root conversation that that you all have been talking about, getting to the roots of what philanthropy is, you know, um, where, you know, the money comes from and so on and so forth. So I really appreciate that. Um Sabrina, let, let's move to this idea of the wisdom and the work and you all's relationship, working relationship. So again, we talk about emphasize, and what we're talking about here is emphasizing your wisdom, right? And 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 sort of emphasizing Kellen's work that Kellen has to do, right? So how does this concept work between the two of you all in the working relationship? And where does it feel successful and where does it feel challenging? Mm. Yeah, so um, it's funny, Kelly and I have talked about this over the years, and and I'm going to speak as a Black woman. For me, it's rooted in truth, and it's rooted in trust. Um, I am not one to trust people automatically, even if I hear all the things that I want to hear. And I mean, I need to, like, you need to make a believer out of me. So one of the things I will say about Kellen is, I have seen in her what allyship looks like and what it should feel like for me. And I'll give an example. So this was probably maybe two years, maybe two and a half years ago. Um, we were at a meeting and um, a white person said something. And I, I don't even know what it was. I don't even know what the comment was, but it was a white male. And Kellen stepped in and said, I need to understand what you mean by that. Can you please unpack that for me? Now, two things were happening. One, I think she already knew what was going on, but she did it in a way that was hopefully, and I think it called this person in to um, backpedal what he said and to think about what it was that he wanted to say and that he probably didn't say it in the best way. Now, what it did is it saved me from having to step in and say something because I was going to say something. And maybe Kelly knew that maybe that's why, maybe that's why she jumped in instead of me. <laughs> But I appreciate that because that wasn't her coming in to save me because she already knew that I could do that. She took that opportunity to publicly call this person in in a way that other people at the table saw what was going on. And even though he stumbled over his words, he was able to say what he needed to say and understand. I probably didn't say this in the right way. or I don't think I know as much as I think I know about this subject. So our relationship for me shifted because I believe there are a lot of times where people want to be allies, but don't understand that it takes more than just reading a lot of books like Waking Up White or or any book about racism. It's great to get that knowledge base, but 
I need to see things in action. I need to see when you can take a hit from me, understanding that I can say it, but you see it too. You need to say it. And so I see that in Kellen. And I see that repeatedly, not just for me, for other staff and other people. That's what allyship looks like. And for me, that is the trusting relationship that I have with her. We are able to be able to give each other grace, to have these hard conversations one-on-one. Um, I don't feel like I will be retaliated against if I say something. I have, um, she jokes I had to call her in a couple times, but I hope it was in a loving way. But that's part of our relationship that has grown because I have seen her in action and not just what she hoped she could do for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm coming to you, Kellen. I just want to I want I want to follow up on this, though, Sabrina, because the story you told about Kellen stepping in, um, uh, it's not something that you could not have done, uh, but it was appreciated that your colleague, your specifically your white colleague, stepped in. So, Sabrina, can you talk a little bit? Because I think that's that's part of this dynamic of the wisdom and the work. Can you talk about the importance of an action like that, given the labor? of this work of, well, really of just being black, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. So can you talk about like, you know, what it's like to sort of bear the lived experience and then having a colleague who understands that and is able to step up and, and, and shoulder that, that burden in that work? Yeah. So we, we do talk a lot about the disproportionate labor of, of Black people, um, and in particular our staff and, and people of color on our board who are associated with John Rex Endowment simply because of the type of work that we do. Um, but the way it also shows up in Kellen and other, and other people um, at John Rex Endowment too, um, I'll give an example of like when George Floyd, that happened, or um, if there's a killing of a Black person that is unjustly done. Kellen is the first to make a phone call to say, are you okay? I just want to check in with you. And she's also the first to say, maybe I need to just give you some space. I'm I'm going to give my black and brown colleagues space today. I mean, we will cancel a staff meeting in a heartbeat. There is nothing that is too important for us just to be, just to to have a, a day just to care for ourselves. And I don't feel like it's going to be held against me if I say, you know what, I'm not doing so good today. I, that type of environment is not, um, it's not my experience at John Rex and Down. And I cannot say that for other places that have worked. And I don't think it's the experience for most Black people, period, in corporate or nonprofit. I just don't think those spaces exist <clears throat> the way they need to exist, where you can actually care for yourself and not be retaliated against in some mm-hmm. way. Mm. And it could be a way that it can come in all forms and fashions. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Powerful, Sabrina. Thank you. So, Kellen, there are a bunch of things I, I want to ask you, but but I do want you to address how this concept of the wisdom and the work from your perspective, how it shows up in your and Sabrina's relationship. And also speak to that point that was made about just what it takes as a white person to step up like you did in that example. And you can use other examples as well, but what does it take, Kellen? What does it take to do that? Mm -hmm. So speak to the wisdom and the work and how that works between y'all. And then what does it take to do those kind of things as a white 
accomplice, ally, whatever word you want to use. Great. Thank you. Well, Sabrina, thanks for that. I will say that um, the word trust comes to my mind, and I will add vulnerability and courage. Um, I'm a big Brene Brown fan, and so a lot of the work around um, vulnerability. And Sabrina and I practice that with each other every day. We, um, and, you know, we've done it in baby steps. It didn't happen overnight because there is no substitute for time to build trust and build relationships. And I think consistency, you know, um, has been really important that Sabrina has had my back time and time again, and I've tried to have hers. I think the leading from a position of fear uh, comes in when, when do you step in or when do you, when is that, when is that really allyship or when are you trying to be a savior? So I have to check my intentions, um, and my motives, um, behind that so that, and sometimes that is just a gut check. Uh, cause I know Sabrina is fine. She can handle herself, <laughs> you know, um, she's a strong, powerful, brilliant, Black woman that I learn from every single day. She does not need me to save her. So it is a discerning as I grow and I, and I start seeing more of what's happening. I become more, we say woke, but aware, you know, of, of, of how things are being said. Um, and I just do a gut check and say, what are my intentions for stepping in or stepping back even? You know, what, what is the motivation? Um, and it's not because I want Sabrina to know I care about her. She knows I care about her. <laughs> does, you know, so those are the things I think about before. Um, and you have to feel the fear and do it anyway, because there mm-hmm. is power dynamics that were going on there too. Um, but you have to, you just, in my gut, once you, once you, see, like I said, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And so you have to say something. Yeah, I, I want the listeners, particularly white listeners at this point, to understand this point you all have made about it is possible to be as a white person in partnership in this work and not be the savior. That is mm-hmm. possible. And so the question becomes to those who are listening, the question becomes, uh, to white colleagues who are listening, that uh, instinct to be the savior, put that under the interrogating question of what does that have to do with power, right? Even though you're helping or you're doing good or whatever it is, just ask yourself, what does that instinct have to do with power? And so there's a question that is lingering about what it means to be supportive and to be in partnership as a white ally, accomplice, co-conspirator, whatever the word is these days, to your black and brown colleagues. So I just I just want to I hope folks are, are dealing with that because that's a that's a big piece that I think can be helpful in terms of strong cross-race relationships when we're talking mm-hmm. about doing racial justice work. Let me ask you, Kellen, what What's been a specific, if you can name one, a specific challenge and how did you all work through it? I think in the beginning, we didn't have the common shared language. 
right? And I think that was an opportunity for misunderstanding. And we had a situation, I remember, Sterling, you may have been there and helped us work through it, where one summer, I think it was last summer, we were trying to, you know, for me, I'm kind of the bridge between the staff and the board. And how do you bring everybody along? And how do you keep the work going? And um, are we going too fast? Are we going too slow? Are we being decisive? You know, so, you know, I was trying to check all my white dominant norm, you know, let things go. Sabrina was really um, and leading and not pushing, but leading us to say, we need to stop. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, we keep kicking this can down the road. We need to go. You know, and so it wasn't um, and sometimes without the language and an understanding of the pace of this work, she had had years and years of experience uh, working in racial equity within an organization than I had. And so that was a challenge for me because I had to listen and trust Sabrina, which wasn't the issue that I didn't trust her. But it was the balance between the work's got to get done, folks, and we've got to get this ready for the board. And our team needed a pause and we needed to, we needed to caucus. So we broke up into racial identity groups and we had to have conversation before the work and the trust and the journey could get back on track. So that was, that was really hard for me um, to balance the needs of what I was hearing from Sabrina and others um, and what I knew needed to get done for an $80 million foundation. and letting go of sort of these old ways of doing things and trusting the black genius, if we will, we've been saying that this session um, and trusting your staff and your team because we're all, they are, Sabrina is my thought partner. I mean, and that is true. We do have that authentic partnership because of that respect and that trust. And we speak truth to power and we keep power listening, which Mm. is the goal. Mm -mm. Yeah. Yeah, Kellen, I, I really like that. Uh, and, and Sabrina, so so what, what I want to ask you related to that is um, we know that there is trust that has been built. Uh, and I'm going to say that that you all have been practicing together, right? Equity is a practice. I want people to hear that. It's a practice mm-hmm. and it's an ongoing practice. Sabrina, I want to ask you, though, sort of, so you had to start, though, somewhere, you know, and Kellen has talked about, you know, acquiring language together and that sort of thing. But what is it that kind of kept you in those beginning spots, right? Because trust grows over time. So the trust that you all have now is not the same trust at the very beginning. But what do you have to do in those sort of formative parts of your relationship to get to this strong trust? What are some of the things that have come into play to help help do that? I think there are several things that I can mention, but I think what's top of mind to me is part of our building the relationship that I felt like we needed to have, and I hope that we do have, is that I was able, probably within that year of me coming on board, being able to name things that I saw. And for me, that was refreshing because um, there were things um, I go back to one of our, um, we had a committee meeting, we were deciding on some grants, and there was one in particular organization that we were trying to decide funding for, and it was across party lines, like all the white staff and board voted one way, and the black board and staff voted completely different. We did not have, to Kellen's point, the language to explain what was happening, but I knew exactly what was happening. 
So I think one of the things that kept me there was um, this is an opportunity because I know the passion and the motivation behind the board and the staff at the time, and it's still present, of wanting to understand what that was and how, that, how race was playing out. And the willingness of Kellen and even our board chair to be willing to understand and listen to me and to staff of color to say, here's what I see. Here's how it feels. It doesn't feel good, but here's a solution I think that can happen. So not only did they listen to me in that way, a lot of the things that we have done over the years, in particular, Kellen and I, um, we've able to, been able to be those thought partners to each other to implement that into the work that we do with the endowment. I think the board has been able to share in that as well. Um, so for me, it was that willingness of people to listen and not necessarily retaliate against me. Um, mm -hmm. If I'm challenged, I love to be challenged. Um, but I don't want to ever be put in a situation where I felt feel like that, oh, well, I'm listening, but I don't really hear you because I'm going to shut down and I won't say anything else. Mm -hmm. And that type of environment, um, it's not working its wills at the endowment that way. We, and, and we are still in a process because we have new staff. I have to keep remembering three of us have been there much longer than the other three. Like over half of our staff is new. So we're trying to make sure that this environment um, works for all of us. And we're majority people of color. We're majority people of color staff. That, too, speaks to the direction that we're going in, the intentionality behind doing racial equity work and racial justice work. And another reason why I'm still there is we're not regular philanthropy. We're just mm -hmm. not. And it feels good and it feels exciting and it feels privileged to be on this side of philanthropy. Yeah, what I like that's being lifted up is this idea certainly of, of, of trust and building trust. Um, I like this idea that you emphasize, Sabrina, about listening. Said they listened to me. And that's really, uh, and I want folks to understand, listen, that's really a big deal. Because one of the things that we know is that more often than not, Black and brown folks, black folks in particular, and women, black women are not believed. And so there is this thing about racial justice work that I want to lift up out of you all's story is that what we often say in our work is that in this work, white colleagues have to get to the point and raise the question or entertain the proposition that they don't know best. Right. <laughs> that, 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 that has to be part of the conversation mm -hmm. that perhaps I don't know best. Right. And so I just want people to hear that because it sounds elementary to sort of just say it, say, of course, you know, black and brown folks, you know, no stuff. No, when it comes down to really making decisions and asking where the power resides, then are we really you know, or is an institution really ready to put that in the hands and the wisdom and the know-how of black and brown people? And that's a piece of work to be done when organizations have been steeped in white dominant culture and white leadership, you know, understanding or, or and under steeped in an understanding that all knowledge is white and male, mm -hmm. right? That's that's something that that's a piece of work to do in terms of a mind shift. So I appreciate you all lifting that up. 
Uh, so as we as we sort of bridge and, and come to a pause, I, I want to ask one other question, and I'll start with you, Kellen, and that is, what are your words of challenge uh, to uh, white folks who are listening, who are in this work or inclined to be in this work? How would you challenge them uh, around this whole idea of racial justice? Thank you for that question and opportunity. Um, you're going to feel the fear and do it anyway. Um, and you just got to get started somewhere. There's no perfect one way to be intentional about this journey. You just have to say, it's back to what you said, like, maybe I don't know best. Maybe there is something more that I need to learn. So you need to humble yourself and realize that there is so much we need to unlearn about history and how it was taught. And we need to do our own work. I, I try really hard while I learn from Sabrina every day. It is not the job of black and brown people to educate us white folk. That's not our job. We can be thought partners together. We can struggle together. We can have wild success together, but it has to be your own personal journey. And then you bring that to the collective journey with the team. So get started. Stop making excuses. Sabrina and uh, Sterling, you two don't have an option <laughs> to turn your back and say, I don't want to deal with race. Well, I do have a choice. As a white person, I can just pretend it's not there because it doesn't impact my day to day. So I would invite my white colleagues to have compassion, <laughs> have empathy, get to work. Because as Sabrina has always said, if black people could have solved this problem, y'all would have done it hundreds of years ago. So there is a role for us to play in thought partnership, just like Sabrina and I are doing. Yeah, thank you. Okay, Sabrina, uh, turning to you, uh, what is your word of encouragement? What are your words of encouragement to uh, black and brown folks um, in this work of racial justice or who are inclined to, to be in it? What do you, how do you encourage them? Um, my words are to continue to take care of yourself. Be clear on who you give grace to because grace is not always warranted. Um, it is not a one-way street. Mm. Um, that sometimes we see things and we want to give grace, but also these repeated toxic behaviors or actions are just a form of manipulation. So do not be a martyr in this work. Care for yourself, whatever that means to you, and do it, and do it unapologetically. Mm. Wow, mm. wow, wow. Kellen and Sabrina, powerful powerful words of challenge, uh, Kellen, to, to white folks out there who are looking to at least listen and learn. So I really appreciate you challenging them to step up uh, and to do it, uh, to, to, to not hesitate and to quit waiting around to make a difference. Because the reality is, in my estimation, is we need enough white folks on this journey. We, we need enough on this journey in order for things to change and to disrupt structural racism and power and to build something that is just, which, we, which we've never seen before. And Sabrina, I, I really appreciate you encouraging black and brown folks 
and really that piece about taking care of yourself and resting and not being a martyr. Uh, the Knapp Bishop, Tricia Hershey yes. of the Knapp Ministry says that you need to realize as a black and brown person that you're worth it. So get your rest, mm-hmm. that you're worth it. And so I hope, mm-hmm. I want to shout that out to folk, black and brown folks who are listening, and I hope you take that to heart. This has been a good, uh, good day. A uh, good session, good words from my friends, Sabrina Slade and Kellen Moore. I really appreciate you all. I want to remind folks that Sabrina is the director of racial equity and advocacy at John Rex Endowment in Raleigh, North Carolina. And Kellen Moore is the president and CEO of that same organization, the John Rex Endowment in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, tell us, uh, Sabrina, what's the, what's the website? How can folks find you all out there? They can come to our website. It's johnrexendowment.org and look us up. We are a small but mighty team of six, six phenomenal women who are getting it done in the South, and we will continue to get it done in the South. Great, great. So, so grateful. I do want to ask folks or encourage folks to look them up, John Rex Endowment, check out their good work. They're making a difference in the world. They're making a difference in the this, this sector and beyond, and that's really important. I want to say uh, thank you, Kella. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation. Thank you for being here. And thank you, Sabrina. Thank you, Sterling, so much for this opportunity. And I also would like you all to check out uh, Crystal Cheatham, who is my partner and uh, producer of this podcast. Check Crystal out at ourbibleapp.com, ourbibleapp.com. She is has created a community of, shall we say, non-traditional theologians and folks who are doing great uh, theology to uh, pull people in from the margins uh, from from a faith perspective. So we thank Crystal for her radical and uh, tearing edge work. And if you don't have anything to do, check me out, Sterling Freeman at counterpartconsulting.co. That's where you can find me and my partner, Kathleen Krabs, in our uh, racial equity work and the change work we do across the country. And also check out the wisdomandthework.com so that you might access this podcast. And until next time, I want to encourage folks to remain with me in stubborn hope. Peace. Thank you for joining us today in our discussion about listening and turning traditional philanthropy on its head. You can find out more about Sterling Freeman's counterpart consulting, Sabrina Slade, Kellen Moore, and Crystal Cheatham's Our Bible App at thewisdomandthework.com. My name is Crystal Cheatham, and I'm happy to be in community with Sterling Freeman as we work together to bring you the wisdom and the work. Mm